This is True Crime Exposed, and I'm your host, Kayla Waters. Each week, you can join me and my co-host, Alicia Jenkins, as we dive into a new case. We created this show to give victims a voice back, to honor their lives and tell their stories. And by doing that, we can expose the monsters lurking all around us. Welcome back, everybody. I'm so glad that you're here, and I am sorry that I did not release an episode last week. My mom ended up being out of town, and I was just going to do this episode without her, but for a few reasons, I just really wanted to do this case with her, and I decided to give myself just that week to take a mental break. I feel like holidays can be crazy, right? I don't know, but there's something about ending out the crazy busy holiday season and I've just been like in a rut, in a hole. It's the end of the winter here in Idaho, very long winter, so I feel like it's like depression season, right? I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I just needed that week and I feel like through the holidays, the end of the holidays into now, I have been kind of terrible with releasing my episodes on time. I'm so sorry. This seriously is such a priority and a passion for me and I love it. I I work full time and have two kids outside of it. So, you know, I just needed that week, but I am ready to get back into it super consistently with you guys. I have a lot of cases on the docket that I'm ready to share with you. So enough excuses out of me. For today's case, it's one that really gripped my heart and just tore it to pieces. It is one that shows the darkness that really hides inside of some people and maybe not even hides, just the darkness that some people have and the callousness and the lack of empathy that lives within others that roam this earth beside us. It's scary. And it also shows just how unjust the system can be. So with that, are you ready for today's case? Before we jump into this, I thought we would talk about two things that happened this week. Did you see that um, there was a person arrested in that Dylan Rounds? Oh, yeah. Missing person's case out of Utah. Who was the guy? Yeah. Um, but it, it's this older dude who was, who they've been kind of looking at since the beginning. Like he was mentioned early on that he might have information. Yeah, that's good. And then the other thing is, because um, have you been following the Murdoch trial? Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So he got convicted this week. Like, well, I guess this would be this last week by the time this comes out. But um, did you watch... The documentary on Netflix. I think I did. I've always thought he was guilty. I did too. But I've never watched like the documentary. I've just listened to a few different podcasts on it, like Dateline and a couple other ones. So I knew the case, but I had never watched it, which sometimes it's just nice to watch and see like the people 
So I watched it. I haven't finished the last one, but I watched the first two episodes and then I forced Jacob to watch them because I was like, I don't, you don't like true crime, but you have to watch this. Yeah. Now there's still one alive, right? One son? Yeah. There's a son Is named Buster? Buster alive. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And was he but younger? He's older. Okay. He was older than that mm-hmm. kid. Yeah. Yeah. So he's oh. like the only one left in the family, but I also don't know. Like, I mean, that's really sad for him as long as he's a good person. But, you know, I think there were like connections, they think, with him to the guy that was found dead in the middle of the road. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I don't know if he's like his family or mm. his dad or if he's just like. I don't know. But in general, it would be super sad to just be the only one left in your family. Your dad is convicted of murdering your brother and your mom. Doesn't it make you think, like, how do people, how are families like that? Yeah. This is, like, one of the craziest cases in, like, modern time. That's why I made Jacob watch it. Because I'm like, there is so much corruption in this one family. Yeah. And for all of these things to have happened, like, that's just unheard of. Yeah. Yeah. So crazy. A lot happening this week with that Murdoch trial and really even just this year. There's a lot of big trials that will go on this year. Are you saying Murdoch or Murdoch? It's Murdoch. Even, it's weird. I think it's Murdoch. No, it's Murdoch, but it's spelled Murdoch. Like, that's the weird thing about his name is it's spelled Alex Murdoch, but it's Alec Murdoch. Are you sure? Like if you listen to this, so. yeah, I'm pretty. I'm like, I'm like 95 percent sure. They say it in the documentary. They say it in court. Like a lot of the news will, will report it as Murdoch because that's how it's spelled. Huh? But they all say Murdoch. <laughs> okay. And they all say Alec. But it is Alex. It's Alec Murdoch. Murdoch. <laughs> it's Alec Murdoch. <laughs> well, it's it, it's A L E X. Yes, but it's spelled Alex Murdaugh. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. You guys tell me. Uh, I think you are. <laughs> but it is. It, I, I don't think I am. I'm like 95% sure I'm right. But it is spelled Alex, Alex Murdaugh. Yeah. That is how it's spelled. Anyway. So for today's episode, I was going to just do it without you because you were gone last week. But then it was so frustrating to me that I was like, I just have to vent to somebody about this. And I decided to look up crimes that have like occurred on cruise ships because we were just on a cruise ship, you know, me and Jacob and our kids. And so it like made me interested in looking up these crimes. I've always heard that cruise ships can be a place where like a lot of crimes are committed. They seem to have a problem with like sexual assaults. There's a lot of people on the ship, a lot of drinking, Mm -hmm. you know, so this happens. Um, And with that, I came across this case. So Alma Wood wakes up on September 24th, 2002 to spend her first morning aboard the P&O Pacific Sky cruise ship. She's on a girl's trip with her sister Diane Brimble, her daughter Carrie Ann, and her niece Diane's daughter Talia. The ship has departed from Sydney, Australia the day before on September 23rd, 2002, and the four girls are sharing cabin D-188. 
Alma wakes up with excitement about their first full day on the cruise and all the memories the girls are going to make. And this trip was a big deal. The sisters had been putting money away for two years in preparation for this vacation, or as they call it there in Australia, this holiday. They were able to save just enough to bring their daughters along. So this sounds like it was meant to be a pretty amazing cruise. It was set to leave from Sydney and head to Noumea, which is part of the the overseas French territory of New Caledonia. And Noumea is on the main island of Grand Terre. From here, the ship would set off to explore some islands of Fiji. And it's like a nine-day cruise. So it does sound incredible. It sounds like a great cruise. Like Fiji, the New, New Caledonia. Yeah. It... It was a big trip, and they're both stoked to be here. They had said to each other while boarding, we finally made it. But when Alma wakes up after that first night's rest on the ship, she notices that Diane's bed does not look slept in. This is mother-daughter? No, sister-sister. Okay. So Diane and Alma are sisters, and then they both brought their daughters. So Carrie Ann is Alma's daughter, and Talia is Diane's daughter. Okay. So... You know, there's this tinge of worry that runs through Alma, but she brushes it off for now. She's sure Diane is out and about on the ship, and she'll just take Carrie Ann and Talia to breakfast, and then they'll look around for her. You see, after attending dinner at a restaurant on board around 6 p.m. the night before, Carrie and Talia head to the kids' club that's on board while Alma and Diane have a few drinks. Which, side note, kids' club, I actually have decided on a cruise is awesome. I went on to the cruise thinking, nope, I would never let my kid go on to the kids club because I'm like high anxiety about anything happening, but it was very safe, really locked down and they do a lot of cool things. So if you are taking your kids on a cruise, I think the kids clubs are fairly safe. Like there were only specific people who could pick them up. We had a pager. (laughs) I was like, I haven't seen a pager like this since like my mom worked in the hospital when I was in like elementary school. (laughs) That's the last time I ever remember seeing a pager. I'm surprised you even let her go. Uh, Oh, I know. I literally went on, like I was telling my father-in-law, I'm like, I will not let Charlie go into the kids club. And I think he was disappointed because he's like, oh, I heard it was like really cool. They get to do all these fun things. And I was like, yeah, it's just, no, I won't. But then they gave us like a brochure of the kids club and it had all the activities they were doing. And then I felt guilty to not let her go because she would miss out on so much. So they are actually pretty cool. And they have like different ages. And she was like the highest age in her age group. It was like three to seven and she's almost seven. So I was like, okay, I think she can hold her own in here and (laughs) stay safe. Anyway, while they had been eating dinner before the kids head to the kids club and they go out for drinks, the group had been mingling with a couple other families that they knew that had also come along on the cruise, including the Chard family. And there's 30-year-old Gamu Chard. And he told Diane he would be interested in heading up to the top, top deck later that night to enjoy some dancing at the Starlight Disco. So there's like other families there that they know. Like they're those four are all in one room together, but there are a couple other like groups that they know that are all on this cruise. Okay. 
After wrapping up at the Legend Sports Bar, it's about 9 p.m. and Alma tells Diane that she will grab the kids from the kids club and she'll take them back to the room for the night. Originally, she also wanted to go to the disco, but she was coming down with a headache and decided she would just take it easy this first night, but she still wants Diane to go and have a good time. So Diane actually does come back to the room first. She decides to put on a new pair of shoes and touch up her makeup before saying goodbye to Alma and Carrie and then tucking her own 12-year-old Talia into bed and kissing her goodnight. By 10 p.m., Diane and Gamu have made it to the disco. And then that next morning, Diane is not asleep in cabin D-188. Alma is not sure what transpired the night before, so when she runs into Gamu at breakfast, she's like, hey, not sure where Diane is, like what happened last night. And Gamu looks a little puzzled. He tells Alma that he had left the disco at 3 a.m., but Diane wanted to stay back, so he's not sure where she ended up. Alarm bells aren't quite going off yet, so they all decide to just walk the decks and see if they can find her. But that search comes up empty-handed. And like searching for someone on a cruise ship is so frustrating because... Like, you normally don't have a lot of communication with each other. I've searched for people on a cruise ship just trying to find where they're at, and it can take a long time. And what if you miss them and there's all these different decks? So they're still not, like, totally worried. They're just like, where is she? So Alma makes contact with some of the staff on board, and she asks them to page her sister. They must have all gotten little pagers just to stay in touch. This is 2002. So like today they have Wi-Fi or you can like probably pay on your phone plan to be able to use your phone. But back then they didn't have all of that. So she's just like asking the staff, can you page her? I'm trying to get in touch with her, but they don't hear anything. It's around this time that an alarm is heard broadcasted across the ship with the code alpha. And it made everyone curious, but at that moment, no one knows that code alpha meant there was a life-threatening situation. As Alma is headed back to her cabin, she sees some staff members blocking off part of the hallway. They seem to be summoning assistance for someone, and she just feels prompted to ask them if the person in need of help was male or female. But the staff isn't sure. So did they call the alpha because they had somebody or because... Diane reported her missing. They called the alpha. Yeah, they called that code because they had come into a situation totally separate of Alma paging Diane. Okay. Yeah, I don't think she was too worried still at that point. She's just like, hey, I don't, can you page her so we can meet up? Yeah. Like she's not thinking anything too like nefarious at this point. So by around 9 a.m., Alma is paged to the nurse's station. She heads there with Carrie Ann and Talia by her side, and upon arrival, they're escorted into Dr. McClaskey's office, where he says to them, I'm sorry, but Diane Brimble has passed away. And the news takes their breath away, because this wasn't even a thought that had crossed their mind. Talia, Diane's 12-year-old daughter, crumbles. Like, how is her mom dead this morning, less than 24 hours after boarding the ship? They're able to be taken in to see Diane one last time and say their goodbyes. And the ship now feels like it's caving in on them. They want nothing but to get off. However, the ship would not be docking in Noumea for two more days. So the three of them have to endure another agonizing 40 hours on board until docking in Noumea and catching a flight back to Sydney. 
that would be terrible. Yeah, because you're just out there in the middle of the ocean. Yeah, and just like confused. They really don't know what's going on or why. It's just like, she died last night, and that's that. So they are able to make a few phone calls. Alma just couldn't bear to make that phone call to their mom, Betty Wood. So she first calls their other sister, Phyllis, and asks her to tell their mom in person. Betty recalls Phyllis coming to her saying, Mom, Diane is gone. She died. But Betty is like, no, no, she's gone for holiday. She's on a boat. Like, she's having a good time. She's fine. And Phyllis, with a broken heart, says, no, she's dead. Now the news spreads to all of Diane's loved ones off the ship, and everyone is stunned. Everyone is tormented by the idea that Alma, Carrie Ann, and Talia are stuck on the ship. And even more than that, there is confusion. No information is being relayed, like, how did Diane die? What happened that night? But even for the girls on the ship, information is scarce. No one knows what happened yet. Alma and the two other girls are taken from their cabin and put into another on the ship. They're told that their cabin has to be blocked off for an investigation. They're not even allowed to go inside and grab like an extra pair of underwear. Like it is rumored that they just had to use their underwear and wash it in the sink. Like they didn't let them grab anything. I mean, that's kind of good. So they didn't contaminate or do anything. It is good, but it is frustrating when you learn... (laughs) who was let into their cabin later. Mm. So we'll come back to it. But they are not allowed in at all. And, you know, they're left just with only what was on them. And again, they have to stay on for two more days. And then when they get to Noumea, before they get off to fly home, police officers do escort them into the room to retrieve some of the belongings. And the two officers that board the ship there in New Caledonia are Detective Ozen and Detective Rulinski. They interview Alma, Carrie Ann, and Talia before the girls fly back to Australia, and then they continue to interview other passengers on the ship. Diane's body at this point is also taken off the ship and flown back to Sydney where an autopsy would be performed. And this is about all the family knows. They were only told that Diane had died on the ship that first night. But no one knows why until three weeks later when the autopsy report comes out. Diane's body was examined at 10 a.m. at the Glebe Morgue by Chief Pathologist Dr. Johan DeFleu on September 28, 2002. And this is four days after her death. Her lungs were filled with fluid, which is often seen when someone stops breathing due to an overdose, along with a significant amount of alcohol in her system at a 0.127. Diane also had a lethal dose of the drug GHB. The date rape? Yes. It is like a known date rape rape drug, and it is gamma hydroxybutrate. Mm -hmm. Does that sound right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So like you said, this is a commonly known date rape drug. So this is shocking to her family. Because she was drugged. Yeah. They're like, she wouldn't do this on her own. And already they had been suspicious when they find out, like, because Alma knows she didn't die in her room. So when they find out that Diane died elsewhere on the ship, they had already been suspicious. And then to have this autopsy, like, confirm that she has GHB in her system... It seems very weird. Now, the pathologist rules her death as accidental, 
but investigators relayed to Diane's family that they are still investigating her death as a homicide or a case of manslaughter because the coroner did conclude that Diane's death was sudden, unnatural, suspicious, and unusual. The doctor on the ship, Dr. Kalinsky, had actually called Diane's doctor like back home and asked, did she have any heart problems? Like, would, would it be likely for her to like randomly have a heart attack? And this is before, you know, the GHB mm-hmm. was out and stuff. And he said, no, like she was healthy. There's no reason she should have just died. So it could not be determined yet if Diane was given the drug without her knowledge and investigators seem to believe that she may have been laying there dying, but no one helped or sought aid. Both of these actions would be criminal in relation to her death. But following this, there's not much traction in Diane's case. Her funeral is held in Brisbane on Friday, October 4th, 2002. And then many painful years pass by with no answers until a coroner's inquest is opened on March 9th, 2006 in the Gleb Coroner's Court in Sydney, Australia. So this is like three and a half years after Diane died. Because the family was bugging them to do stuff or? I think this coroner just felt like they needed to. I do not know why it took so much time. Wow. Was there nothing that their family could do to like make sure they investigated right away? Yeah, not really, I guess. I mean, I think it gets a little complicated with who's in charge and who was on the ship and just a ship security guard started the investigation. And then those officers in New Caledonia get on and then it's like goes to the New South Wales court. You know, it's just like a lot of confusion and then you know, the coroner or the pathologist ruled it as accidental. So I don't know if it just took a long time to kind but there really seems no reason. The family says there were just excuses and delays mm. and they don't know, you know, they keep asking about it, but it just does not get underway. And so I do have an explanation right here about this because the system there in Australia is obviously a bit different than ours here in the United States. So the coroner's inquest is basically a hearing in a courtroom that concerns a death or a suspected death. And the hearing is led by the coroner to gather more information about the circumstances of a death. And the inquest into Diane's death was held by deputy state coroner at that time, Jacqueline Millage. So this is when the horrific details of Diane Brimble's first night on the ship are exposed. But before I jump into those details, I think we all need a little background on Diane so that you can get an idea of who she was, because I think it's important in this case, especially where you're talking about like drug use and... um, Well, most people that do get the date rape drug don't take it themselves exactly uh, agreed um, but it's questioned in this case so it, this is a frustrating case actually you'll it gets so much worse so Diane just a little bit about her she was one of six children and her mom remembers her having like a zest for life describing her as coming into this world already dancing her sister Phyllis Kirkman the one who had to notify her mom Betty that she had died she says that she will never forget Diane's full of life personality and that's kind of what everyone says about Diane like she was just really outgoing, really friendly, and she's like one of those people who could socialize wherever she went. 
It didn't matter to Diane where they were from, what religion they were, what color they were. She simply saw everyone as the best version of themselves, and she just loved making friends. Diane had met Mark Brimble at a nightclub, and he fell in love with her for all the reasons everyone else was so drawn to Diane for. She was enthusiastic and outgoing. She made life fun. And the couple married in 1982, and they go on to have two sons together, Sebastian Brimble and Aaron Brimble. Mark says that after Aaron came along, the duo decided to question their relationship. Ultimately, it did not work out, and they do divorce. However, they were able to remain close friends. Diane was even close with Mark's second wife and his family. They had shared those two kids together, so that respect remained. And after her death, Mark becomes a huge advocate for Diane's justice. He's even like the head of... Um, I'll have to look it up. It's like an organization I'm sharing at the end of this, but it's called like cruisevictims.org. Oh. Yeah, and he became like a huge part of it and is like the head of the Australian chapter. That's cool. So... They were really close, yeah, even though they, like, weren't together. Wow. So once their marriage did come to an end, Diane met David Mitchell while they were both out in town with friends. And he said not only was she stunning, but she was vivacious, and they just clicked. Talia, the 12-year-old daughter that Diane brought on the cruise with her, is the daughter that David and Diane shared. And their relationship continues for 14 years, so they were together a very long time, although it does have its ups and downs. David describes it as a very on-again, off-again relationship, but he was also a huge part of raising Sebastian and Aaron, so even though they would break up, they did maintain a close friendship as well. And he said they were always wanting to hopefully get back together one day, but at the time of the cruise, the couple was separated. But I think it says a lot about her that, I mean, both people she's not with seem to have been really good friends with her and they both are like a huge part of like standing up for her after her death that's cool so everyone remembers diane as an attentive and loving mother who was happy and bubbly and made everyone around her comfortable after having her third baby talia diane did grow a little insecure with her changed body that's literally easy for all of us to do but she was finding that like that love for herself again she is also described as sexually conservative. Those that knew her could only recall one time where Diane had a one night stand and afterwards she was like super torn up about it and really hard on herself. And you're probably like, what does that matter? Like in truly in general, it doesn't. I don't really care if Diane was like sexually promiscuous or sexually conservative, but this question does come up in this case and knowing Diane's background in this area and like what her friends recall of her is important because these two things like drug use and like sexual promiscuity both come up in the case sadly okay so diane was also not known to be a drug user she did enjoy going out and having some drinks and dancing but she just didn't do drugs like sure she had experimented with marijuana back in her early 20s but that's not something she continued to do she's 42 at this time that she goes on the cruise ship she's a mom of three and none of her loved ones could comprehend that she would have willingly taken drugs at this time in her life but remember, she has that high dose of GHB in her system. Like you said, most people who are given the date rape, rape drug do not intentionally take it. 
so obviously, <laughs> but for some reason it's questioned. Diane's ex-husband, Mark, recalls that she was not a huge traveler, but the one time the couple had gone overseas on a trip, she told him that one of her dreams was to go on a cruise. So how did this dream come true turn into a nightmare? While boarding that same P&O Pacific Sky cruise ship on September 23rd, 2002, was a group of eight men traveling together. 29-year-old Mark Wilhelm, Leo Silvestri, Ryan Kuchel, Matthew Slade, Dragon Losick, this name, a little hard, probably saying most of them wrong, but this one for sure, Seclarius, Seclarius, aka Charlie is what they refer to him as, thankfully, Camboris, Luigi Vital, and Peter Pantic. And the men's ages range from late 20s to their early 40s. And there were a lot of women on board that first night that took note of the eight men because their behavior seemed alarming. They were just making a lot of people uncomfortable. So four of the men were staying in cabin D-182 and the other four were in cabin D-178. Both cabins were on the same deck that Diane's cabin was on and she's found dead that morning in cabin D-182. At one point, three of the men had come across some young girls heading to their own cabin, and this is on the first night. The three men were Dragon, Pete, and Mark. The girls are teenagers. They're 16, 17, and 18 years old. And these full-grown men come up to them and introduce themselves before asking if they can go down on them, meaning can they give them oral sex. And when this is asked, the men had already like followed these young girls into their room. And now the girls are taken back and they're like, how about no? Can you leave our room? But the men will not leave. Even when one of the girl opens the door, raises her voice and yells, get the F out of our room. They can see that Pete, Mark and Dragon are getting upset, but they didn't expect Mark to punch the wall. When one of the girls asks why he has a black eye, she's just kind of joking and is like, you must have lost a fight. But he loses his cool. And at this point, the men finally make their way into the hallway. The girls slam the door behind them before hearing the door handle jiggle as the three men try to get back into their room. Thankfully, they give up and they go on their way. But this is just an example of how, like, entitled and, like, the dangerous behavior. That's just creepy. Yeah. Like, ew, you're disgusting. These are literal teenagers. And even if they were grown adult women, you don't just go up to someone and ask, like, can we go down on you? And you don't just go in their room. And you don't jiggle the door handle after (laughs) someone tells you to get out and shuts the door. Like, so super weird. Hopefully they called security. Like, I think everyone was alarmed by their behavior, but nothing quite pushed anyone to do anything. Which, looking back, I'm sure they wish they would have. These men just happened to be at the disco on board at the same time that Diane was there. They're, of course, drunk, and they're the loudest ones there, making fools of themselves. Certain passengers will testify later at the inquest that the behavior of these boys was so sketchy that they made sure not to leave their own drinks unattended. Because the men seemed like they were not only drinking alcohol, but also using drugs. So multiple passengers noted, like, "Mm, no. And the security guards had to warn this group countless times to tone it down and be respectful of the other passengers. But remember, Diane saw the best in people, so their loud behavior wasn't off-putting to her. 
She was always the loud, fun life of the party, so she was actually drawn to them. It's said that Diane made her way over to the men the night at, that night at the disco, and even though some of the men were disrespectful a-holes to her, she's able to let it roll off her back and ignore it. She was just having fun dancing and drinking that night. And it was Leo Silvestri that was extremely cruel to Diane, and I'll say this right now, I absolutely despise this piece of crap person. I mm -mm, do not like this guy. He is a nightmare to me. Terrible dude, in my personal opinion. It was Leo and Pete who had apparently told Diane she needed to go away when she came up to them, and she was just like being friendly with their group, and they're like, yeah, you need to go away. Like, they were just super rude. That's not why I hate him, though. It's part of it. But Diane had been found dead that next morning in the room shared by four of these men. And Leo was one of the men staying in the room where Diane died. A passenger later testifies that she was on the top deck on the morning of September 24, 2002, when Leo comes up to her, telling her that she missed an exciting night because there had been a death on the ship. And this girl is like, what? Like, I, she didn't know what he was talking about. She's thinking that Leo was either lying or that it was possibly an elderly passenger who had died. But then he says, yeah, we found her in our room and we even thought about throwing her overboard, but there were just too many people walking around. Oh my gosh. <laughs> red flag. Yeah, big red flag. She literally still thinks he's lying because that's like insane to say to another person. But when she hears the news of Diane's death later that morning, a chill runs down her spine. When Diane had been discovered deceased in cabin D-182, Leo was in a frenzy with the staff, telling them, quote, that's my room. Get the bitch out of my room. Wow. Try to have or pretend to have an ounce of respect for other people. It's like he's just fully does not care. Just a bad dude. Yeah. And there's other passengers who report later hearing Leo say, we effed the bitch, kicked her out of bed, and then she died. So he just does not care. Oh, are these guys all single? I don't know if they're all single. They're definitely all acting single. So like huh. they're on this cruise ship single, just eight men, like there to party. Yeah. You'll see he calls her like an ugly dog. He talks about her breath being bad. Like he's really just disrespectful about her. Oh my gosh. Yeah, he is like, I hate him big time. So when Leo is questioned by investigators, he says that he's not sure what happened. He took a few sleeping pills, so he was passed out. And then he says he woke up to find Diane laying in his bed. And then he kicked her out of his bed because he didn't want her there. And then he just went back to sleep. And in the morning, they find her unconscious. But obviously, this story is a lie. And you can probably understand why I think he is complete trash. So we know that Diane's friend Gamu Chard leaves the disco by 3 a.m. Security guards on the ship confirm that Diane is the last woman left at the disco, and she was hanging out with this group of men. Although she seemed like she still wanted to hang out with these men, the security guard noted how quickly her demeanor deteriorated. Like she had been out drinking and she was drunk through the night, but by those early morning hours, she had gone from just being drunk to being totally gone. Like she couldn't walk without holding on to someone. She was falling over. She was slurring her words. But the security guard just didn't see it as alarming as it was until he finds out about her death the following day. 
we always say like hindsight's twenty twenty. Oh, I bet he feels bad. I know. I bet a lot of people feel bad because there's some pretty like she definitely probably could have been saved a few times. So that following morning, September 24th, at 8.30 a.m., the ship's nurse, Diana Winter, is paged. So they call her down to room D-182, and it's about a passenger that had collapsed. So she calls down to the cabin, and there's a man on the other end of the phone. He says, there's a woman who was in our room drinking, and she passed out, and I just can't tell if she's breathing. Now, this cabin, D-182, is shared by Mark Wilhelm, Leo Silvestri, Ryan Kuchel, and Matthew Slade. And then the other four are in a different room. But they're all kind of back and forth between the rooms, you know, throughout the night. Mm-hmm. So this nurse, Diane Winter, she brings a wheelchair, an oxygen take, and a portable defibrillator to the room with her because she's thinking she's going there for a passenger that has collapsed and is passed out. And she comes in the room to see Diane laying on the floor in the middle of the room between like both bunks. So there's bunks on both sides, four people, right? So like two bunks, two bunks, and then Diane's on the floor between them. She is fully dressed, but her skin is blue. She's not breathing and there is no pulse. So the nurse is like, this is very urgent. And she frantically asks the men, does she have any medical conditions? She's asking about information on Diane. But of course, these men don't really know Diane. So they say that they don't know. The nurse, while she's there, notices a pillow on the floor and she does collect it for evidence. And when they can't get Diane's heart to start beating, she is pronounced dead at 9.03 a.m. on the Pacific sky. The nurse asks Dr. McCalliski if her death seems suspicious. And he's like, yeah, obviously. <laughs> yeah. This is suspicious. And it's like they can't tell if she's dead or not. She's blue. She's blue. She's not breathing. There's literally no pulse. They knew she was dead. 100%. And you'll see. It, it like the more I got into it just the more shocked I kept getting because like the depravity of it and just like how careless they were so we know that Diane's cabin was sealed off as a crime scene right like her daughter and sister and niece could not even grab an extra pair of underwear and even though staff was told to tape off cabin D-182 a doctor on board does not get the memo when he allows the men back into the cabin to gather their belongings uh, they're seen picking up some white pills off the table. They're, mm-hmm. you know, they're cleaning their stuff up. It's the head of security, Stan Westwood, he, on the ship. He's a head of security on the ship, and he starts the investigation. So first, he interviews Mark. This is who called. Then this is Mark Wilhelm. Leo, I said I hated him, and I do. I think he was a huge part of this, but Mark Wilhelm is like our main perpetrator in the story. So Mark is like, well, we just brought Diane back to our room because she dragged me to the ladies room because she just like really wanted me to give wanted to give me oral sex. And then so we moved down to my room and then we had sex with her is what he says. We. Who's we? Exactly. And he doesn't specifically say who we is, 
but he does repeat this multiple times when talking with different investigators and reiterating the story. So he says that Diane, Diane from the disco takes him to the bathroom, the ladies bathroom, gives him head. Then they move to his room. Mark and Diane have sex. And then he says that she starts showing interest in Leo, the douchebag who was like, get the F away from us. So I highly doubt she was showing interest in him. But yeah, they drugged her. So she didn't know what she was doing. Exactly. And there is a person who testifies later and says, like, when you take GHB, that will lower your inhibition enough to make decisions you would not normally make. Well, yeah. And I'm sure they all were just taking their turns with her. Exactly. And that's gross. Like, just have sex with each other. (laughs) Literally. If you're going to do that. Like, I, yeah, I have never, I mean, I don't understand sexual assault in general because it just seems so odd and like embarrassing to me that you would force yourself onto someone like wouldn't you feel embarrassed and then when they do it in group settings it's just like I do not understand that group mentality of like thinking that's okay you're right like just do it with each other if you all want to be like super depraved and like yeah yeah doing a just go yeah yeah. don't attack others and involve others into like your sick mind If you're going to share. Like, with only consenting adults, obviously. So, Mark says that after he has sex with Diane and she shows that interest in Leo, that he leaves the cabin to visit with other friends. And when he comes back, he just finds her on the floor. He thinks she fell off the bed and that's when he calls for medical help. The investigator is like, okay, has anyone consumed drugs? But, of course, he says no. This is when Mark is told that Diane has died and they say that he looks shocked and he starts crying, but I'm going to assume totally in my own opinion that he probably looks shocked and is crying because he knows he's the cause of it and he knows that he is screwed now. Mm -hmm. He gave her this drug and I'm sure he didn't intend for her to die, but I do think he intended to rape her. Yeah. And now she has died. By 9.30 a.m., this investigation obviously needs to go further than just being done by a cruise ship security guard. So there is a call made to the Water Police of New South Wales Marine Area Command. And we know that when the ship docks in New Caledonia, Detective Ozen and Detective Rulinski board the ship. And when they board the ship, there's women and other passengers that are coming up to the detectives and telling them that they believe Diane's drink was spiked. So this is before her autopsy even comes back three weeks later, like saying that there was GHB in her system. Mm -hmm. So the men had been so open with other passengers on board about their drug use and that they brought drugs that the rumors started flying quickly. And it turns out they were correct. I mean, that's not a coincidence that passengers immediately thought her drink was spiked. Yeah. And then it turns out she has GHB in her system. There is one woman on board who tells the detectives that her and her boardmates, so like her and her friends that are in their room, they, the men came into their room intoxicated. It sounds like they went into a bunch of different women's rooms. Like they were just trying to hang wherever they could hang. Oh my God. So Yeah. With them, this woman says that one of the men is holding a water bottle filled with pink liquid. And she's like, what? Like, what's in that water bottle? And the men say that it's fantasy, which is a term for GHB. Mm. 
And soon, investigators are hearing more rumors, but now about photographs that have been passed around by the men. Degrading and cruel photographs that painted a dark picture of Diane's last hours. The pictures included Diane stripped naked and in compromising positions. There are many reports describing the pictures as ones of Mark having sex with Diane. Some reports have even said they're photos of Diane having sex with Mark. But I'm going to call it as I see it, which is their pictures of Mark raping Diane. Mm-hmm. Like when they say, oh, yeah, there's pictures of Diane having sex with Mark. No, no, she's not she having sex with Mark. Yeah, she can't give consent. And the pictures like detail a lot of disrespect and callous treatment of Diane. There are photos of Diane naked next to Leo, a.k.a. the dude I super hate. And there are photos of two men sleeping on the bottom bunks in the cabin with Diane on the floor between the bunk wearing nothing but black socks. So if there is a photo of Diane laying naked where she is found the next morning, why was she fully dressed when the nurse comes to her aid? Well, it turns out that the men had showered Diane's body that morning before dressing her back into her clothes and laying her back onto the floor before calling for medical help. So yes, they did know she was dead before they called. Oh my gosh. And they showered her to like yeah. get all the evidence off. I think there's a couple different reasons. And as we'll see, like there's someone later in the inquest that testifies they believe that one of the reasons was because they truly did actually want to throw her overboard. Like they had said, like Leo had said to that passenger, they must not have had a room that had a window. Thank goodness. Or like a deck. And so it sounds like they maybe were going to like take her out and I don't know, throw her off somewhere. But then by the time they shower her and dress her, there's too many people awake and like roaming the ship. Uh. So that's like one theory. And then, yeah, I think they just wanted to make it look like what had occurred that night didn't occur. Yeah. That's like one of the most damning parts of it to me is like you got her up, you showered her body and you dressed her before you called for help. So there is a woman that comes forward and speaks with investigators as well as speaking at the inquest. And she says that the men had been inside her and her friend's room that morning. Kelly Davis was in the cabin that the men went to from about 6.30 a.m. to about 8 a.m. And remember, they take Diane back to their room around 3, 4 a.m. So a few hours later, some of the men are in Kelly Davis's cabin with her friends. And these men were Peter, Dragon, Mark, and Ryan. And the woman said that the men admitted they watched Mark have sex, rape, Diane. And it's during the time that these men are hanging out here that Charlie, another one of the men, enters the cabin and he's freaking out and he's saying that the woman in Mark's room had defecated and that Mark needed to go and clean her up. So Mark heads to the cabin, but instead of helping Diane, he actually takes photos of her where he has zoomed in on her buttocks, like, and he comes back to laugh and show the pictures of Diane. To oh my everybody. gosh. Just get more shocking. These guys are yeah. disgusting. That was one of the things that I was like, I could literally kill you. Where do you live? I'm just kidding. But like, Ew. you know, what? Like that is, I can't even imagine somebody being like that depraved to do that. 
And there's actually one woman in the room that is a nurse and she's a little concerned because she says this is a bad sign. When someone defecates, it could be a sign of them overdosing. Like she tells them this. Yeah. And she's like, I really think you should go check on her. And finally, Mark is like, okay, I'll go check on her. So he goes, he checks on her, and he comes back to tell them that he thinks he felt a pulse. So by this point, the women in the room are super uncomfortable. They want the men out, but they also don't want to piss them off. So they promise them that they're going to meet them for breakfast, but that they need to get some sleep. And they get the men out of their room. Unfortunately, I think she like very much regrets that she did not call for help for the girl then but again like the security guard like hindsight's 2020 obviously looking at it now it's like yeah Mm, yeah like you should have said something yeah you know it's not her fault it's their fault but should have called who knows if like her and her friends were also intoxicated yeah she was already passed away that's a sign of that right like when you pass like your bowels will Mm -hmm. relax yeah yeah to think that mark went back into the room and took pictures zoomed in of like that happening it i just cannot wrap my mind around it there is a camera memory card that is retrieved like when i first started hearing like getting into this part of my research i thought that just people on the ship had seen it but these photos do go into evidence like these were very much real and really had been taken so The card was actually first just found on the ground by an eight-year-old boy who then like takes it to the staff and a staff member puts it into the computer and they log it as lost property. This staff member then locks it away, but the next day it's missing. It turns out that Michael Edgework, a junior assistant on the ship, sees the memory stick in the lost and found and he thought, you know, this would fit my own camera. And so he's like telling one of his colleagues, like, I actually think this would go in my camera. Like, do you think it's anybody's? And the colleagues like, just take it. Who could it hurt? So he does take it. But when he puts it into his own camera and sees the horrific nature of those photos, he quickly realizes that the authorities would need this as it was likely the woman who had died on the ship the day before. Mm-hmm. Even though he might get in trouble, he does turn it in, and thankfully he does. Coroner Jacqueline Millage said that the memory stick was absolutely crucial to the inquest, and she thanked Michael for turning his grave error of judgment by taking the memory stick into a positive thing by turning it into police. So they do send this to a professional tech who is able to retrieve deleted pictures. It's a 64 megabyte memory stick. There are 41 photos visible and there are 156 deleted that are recovered. And 22 of those deleted images were taken between 4.50 a.m. and 6.55 a.m. that morning on the Pacific sky. Oh my gosh. Other people who testified at the inquest were Leanne McDonald. She was staying in cabin D-186, which was right next door to D-182. 
and she heard them return to the room at 4.30 a.m. This was followed by a lot of loud noises. And then there is witness Serena Golan, which this was shocking to me. She walks past room D-182 at 5.30 a.m. She says that she sees people laying everywhere inside the cabin. So people are just passed out everywhere, including Diane. And she also sees Mark Wilhelm holding his penis and swinging it around And when she looks in the room and she's just passing by, he yells out to her, you want a bit of this? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like awful. Yeah. Awful. Those sound like some really... Just like a bunch of douchebags. Yeah. I cannot. So there's also a man named Gregory Williams that was staying in cabin D-158 and around 5 to 5.30 a.m. he says he heard a loud male voice say the effing slut shit all over me. Oh, wow. That's like really sad. Yeah, it's probably Leo. Yeah. And then a really sad thing is that Mark Brimble says that um, Diane's daughter Talia actually thought she heard screaming like that night. And so that he said that that has like really haunted her like moving forward because she like fears that she heard something happening to her mom. Aww. I know. Isn't that sad? sad? I know. It's just so sad for her. Like, even just being on the ship, 12 years old, that's, like, still really young. Yeah. And your mom dies. Yeah. Really sad. So, the cruise, when it comes to an end, like, the men stay on the cruise, right? They, The three girls get off. They go back to mourn the death of Diane. But the men finish out this cruise. And then they just go home to their regular lives. And seven months following the deaths, investigators do go to Adelaide, which is where the men live, and they're re-interviewing them. They even show them the incriminating photos. They show them the autopsy reports, but everyone is keeping their mouth shut. They don't want to say anything. By this point, Mark Wilhelm had already hired a lawyer. He knew he was in trouble. The police, though, had gotten a warrant to tap the men's phones, so they're able to listen to hours and hours of the men talking. And it seems that the source of the GHB was from Mark. Mm, Based on their conversations, they're able to tell that Mark did give Diane the GHB. They also listened to the men planning to sync up their stories and they're prepping for the inquest. Through the inquest, the backgrounds of the men are also revealed. Most of them have criminal backgrounds. They all have history with drugs. Some of them are related to bike gangs. They're just like they have a seedy history. And the eight men had all put money in together to buy the drugs and then sneak them onto the cruise ship for their trip. An example of some of their criminal backgrounds, like Dragon Losick, he was accused of raping a 17-year-old girl in 1979, but the defense had argued that it was consensual, so he was acquitted of that. So it's charges like that. Like, they're just, Mm -hmm. as we can see, not good dudes. No. No, not at all. I can't believe it was such a big group, too. I know. It's always shocking that people, like, find each other when they're just kind of evil, but to find like that many, like eight. And I guess the coroner does say that there's one who was credible. So she said, like she questions what all of them say, except for Matthew Slade, which he was in the room that Diane died. But I think it might be likely that he truly was asleep. 
when stuff happened and mm. she says that he was the only credible witness of all eight of them so like to find seven guys that are gonna lie for each other and like support this behavior scary very so through the inquest mark maintains that he never supplied diane with the drugs but all the men's stories conflict even though they all planned them out together and they're heard on tape trying to sync up their stories there is Dr. Allender who testifies at the inquest. He is a former scientist who specializes in medical, uh, oh no, medicinal chemistry. And he said that a large dose of GS GHB would lower someone's inhibitions. So I kind of said that earlier, like GHB in this large dose would allow someone to engage in sexual acts that they normally would never do and he says that she had twice the amount of the recreational limit in her system and it was mixed with alcohol so he did believe that it was because of this ghb that her inhibitions were lowered enough that she would then enter the cabin with the men even though that's something she wouldn't normally do yeah and it's like obviously this wasn't her plan like she is on a cruise with her daughter like yeah she doesn't want to do all that yeah, she wanted to go out and dance and have a good time. But, like, she was not on here seeking out sex or, like, a one-night stand. Or, like, this wasn't what she was looking for. Mm -mm. And then it's also been said that her room is on that same deck as the men. So, who's to say she was also not headed back to her room or, like, told them, like, oh, yeah, we can walk down together. And then she's, like, convinced to go into the room with them. They're forced, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's also reported to the inquest that death from GHB can be reversed. It's, well, not death. Okay, that I said that weird. Death from GHB can be prevented. And it's an ER doctor from Royal Adelaide Hospital that says if the person is intubated and put on a respirator early enough, that they could live through a GHB overdose. So he's saying that had they called the nurse earlier this could have made a difference in diane's like life or death yeah there's also sexual assault specialist dr jean edwards that testifies and she reiterates to everyone it is not diane's nature to have sex with multiple partners let alone with the door wide open because that other girl testifies the door's open yeah and that is just not something diane would do no it's also reported to the inquest that the night after Diane's death, Mark is having sex with another woman from the ship. Mm. Now, the coroner does agree with Detective Ozen that Diane did not voluntarily take the drug. So the detectives had determined she was given this drug without her knowledge. Coroner Jacqueline Millage agrees. And she rules that the cause of death was the effects of GHB and the manner of death was the administration of the drug by a known person. Please tell me these men went to prison. Um, yeah, no, you are going to be so frustrated with the end. Like, it gets even more frustrating. Oh, my gosh. So following the inquest, in September of 2008, the New South Wales Director of Prosecutions announces that Mark, Leo, and Ryan should face criminal charges in the, the death of Diane. He says that the two former, so Ryan and Leo, should be charged with perverting the course of justice. 
ultimately, Leo and Ryan plead guilty to concealing a serious indictable offense since they lied in regards to Diane's death. And it gets worse. In October of 2009, a jury is held for Mark Wilhelm. And the Crown had charged him, and I think the Crown is like their government or their government system. So originally, there are three charges for Mark. One, supplying a prohibited drug. Two, manslaughter if the GHB significantly contributed to death. And three, manslaughter by criminal negligence for failing to aid Miss Brimble as she lay dying on the floor. Mm. So, and then there was a last charge that is actually withdrawn by the prosecution because the Crown admitted that it could not prove exactly when she died. Yeah. The charge that was dropped was the, they had also charged him with gross criminal negligence because he failed to summon assistance after she passed out and then was left on the floor of the cabin just to die. But that is the charge that the prosecution drops because they cannot prove when exactly she died. During this five-week trial, all of his friends are trying to cover up for him. They say that Dragon Losick forgot facts, like conveniently would forget facts, and that Leo Silvestri also developed a selective memory. Mm-hmm. Now, the defense lawyer claims that Diane took the drug freely and voluntarily and that they didn't even pressure her to take it. The jury agrees that Mark did give her this drug, but not that it was a substantial factor in her death. The jury actually came back to the court and they ask before they make their decision. They ask if the accused supplied Miss Brimble with GHB and this drug substantially contributed to her death, can the fact that Miss Brimble, being an adult person who voluntarily took the drug, be a reason for the accused to be found not guilty of manslaughter? So they're asking, like, if Diane took this drug voluntarily from Mark and then she died from it, is that reason enough that she took it voluntarily to not find him guilty of manslaughter? Does that make sense? Yeah. But the court says no. Like, whether she took it voluntarily or not, that's not a defense. Like they say, he is still responsible for the manslaughter if he supplied her that drug because it's an illegal drug. Like, it's prohibited for him to even have. So they go back, they continue to deliberate. And then when the prosecution does withdraw that last charge, the gross criminal negligence or whatever, the jurors are instructed that they were no longer needing to worry about whether Mark should have helped her. And they were instructed to ignore the photographs of her dying on the cabin floor. Which I'm like, that's still a part of her death. What, like, why were they instructed to ignore it? Apparently, because now they're not deciding if he like helped her in a timely manner. But I'm like, it does show like a callousness and a disrespect for her life. Well, yeah. So I'm not sure. But thankfully, they already had seen them. Like if I was a juror, I'd be like, okay, let me just forget that. Like, yeah, obvi- like I'm not going to like it's in my mind. But anyway, ultimately, the jury comes back and they're deadlocked it is a mistrial oh yeah they had actually come back and they could not agree on the manslaughter charge they did agree this is a weird thing to me so they came back and they said they did think he was guilty 
of providing GHB to her, but they were deadlocked on the manslaughter charge. But that's super weird because you just asked the court if it mattered whether she took it or not. And they said, like voluntarily, and they said no. So you agree that Mark gave it to her, which the court said, if he gave it to her, then you find him guilty of manslaughter, but you can't agree that he's the reason. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So I just thought that was so weird. Unfortunately, because of this, there has to be a second trial. Now, there is a lady, Caroline Hutchinson, who wrote an article titled Diane Brimble and Me. And she talks a lot about Leo Silvestri. This is where I first learned about a lot of his quotes. So, you know, she writes about how he admitted on the morning in question that he found her dead on the floor and then he showered and dressed her lifeless body. And Leo also said when he was telling, talking to investigators about Diane walking up to their table, he says, quote, it's, it's like, hi, see you. I brushed her off. I didn't want to speak to her. Breath, yuck, ugly dog. Just go talk to someone else. Whoa. I hate you. And why are you telling investigators that? And the jurors heard all this? Yes. But I mean, well, Leo and um, Ryan, they just pled guilty. So they didn't have a trial. But they only pled guilty to like a very small charge in the grand scheme of it all. Yeah. So he also kept referring to her through all his interviews as the thing and the ugly dog. Also saying that he didn't talk to anything over 60 kilos, which I don't know what that is in relation to pounds, but he's talking about her weight. Yeah. He didn't talk to anything. So he's talking about women in general. I don't talk to anything. Like, do you mean anyone, sir? Yeah. Over 60 kilos. Do you know, like, the conversion? Are you looking it up? Yeah, it's 2.2 pounds. So over 132 pounds. So he doesn't talk to anyone over 130 pounds. All right. (laughs) Bye. Like, we don't care. But, I mean, he is just seriously such... I can't think of any other word. It's like a la- a poor choice of word, but douche. That's all I think when I think of these guys. Wow. I cannot stand them. Jeez. Yeah. I wonder where they are in life. Just doing their thing. So Caroline, who wrote this article, also wrote, quote, I want you to take a look around today. Look at your sons and think about what their values are. Are your boys kind? Are they generous of spirit? Do they think about the needs of other people? Are they brave? Do you trust them to do the right thing? Would your son stand up for a drunken girl being harassed or degraded by a group of older blokes? Would he drag Diane Brimble out of a ship's cabin and get her help? Look at your son. Ask yourself if he's that kind of boy, because that's the type of man we need him to be. Well, any decent human would help her, would have helped her. No matter if it was their buddies. Exactly. Ultimately, Mark goes to his second trial on April 19th, 2010. But by April 21st, 2010, it is concluded because he actually decides to take a plea agreement. The family wasn't really even asked about it. They're just brought in and they have to listen, you know, to kind of the conclusion of it all. And there is a presiding trial judge, Judge Justice Roderick Howe. 
And he says to the family of Diane Brimble that Mark might have been technically and morally responsible for Diane's death on the ship and that his behavior was bad and insensitive, but he was not legally responsible for manslaughter. The judge criticized the prejudice and hysteria surrounding the death, and he said that Mark was just subjected to rumors and misinformation and wrongful conjecture. Wow. So the judge, not a fan. So it was a man, and he just thought she was uh, out partying and just died from her own drug use. And like literally feels so bad for Mark. So it's Jim Walker who reported on this part of the case. And the family is super frustrated with the system after this. Now, the judge criticized not only like what apparently Mark was subjected to, but he criticized the media for, quote, not taking defendant Mark Wilhelm's rights into consideration by showing a series of photographs depicting unsavory behavior on the night Diane died. Yeah, that he did. Yeah, photographs he freaking took. Yeah. And there's also a photograph, which I unfortunately had to come across it when I was researching because I didn't know it was out there. It's of Mark, butt naked, holding his wiener with a life jacket on after he barged into some girl's room. Ew. So it's like he was just roaming this ship like he owned it, entitled, like, swinging his wiener at everyone, apparently. Thinking he was something else. Thinking he's hot shiz, thinking he can do whatever he wants. And it's like the judge is mad because the media shared this information about him. Yeah, as they should. Yes. Are these... Were these men wealthy? Did they come from? I don't really know. I mean, it doesn't sound like it because it sounds like they're all like they have criminal backgrounds and all of this Did stuff. Did this judge but get paid off? I know it's so weird to me that the judge like empathizes with him, like try to empathize with the victim. There is a sentencing date scheduled for April 29th. And at that date, the same judge, Justice Roderick Howe, Let's Mark go free. He gets no jail time and no probation. Oh my gosh. Nothing. He gets nothing and he even took a plea deal. So he ends up pleading guilty. But he pled guilty. So he pled guilty to supplying the GHB in agreement that the manslaughter charge would be dropped. But why didn't he get anything for that? Yeah, nothing. Because the judge. Literally, the judge says that he had sympathy and concern for Mark because Mark already had to endure years of public humiliation. And he thought that Mark was a victim of the media's depiction of him. And that was punishment enough. Mm, That judge got paid off. I'm like, yeah, you or that judge is like a predator himself, apparently. If you agree with that behavior. Like, years of public humiliation. Yeah, he was taking photos of Diane's dead body that had released, like, her bowels had released, and he was taking zoomed-in photos of it. Yeah. And showing everybody laughing. So, yeah, years of public humiliation, not enough. You should get that, no. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Jim Jim Walker, who reported on this, said, quote, Mr. Wilhelm should be humiliated by his conduct. He is at least alive. 
he took his life vest off, put some clothes on, and went home. He has the rest of his life to enjoy, but Mrs. Brimble is dead and buried. Her family has nothing but their grief for the rest of their lives. Ugh. I hate when, like, the prosecutors and the judges are on the side of the, like, perpetrator. I hate that. So, the prosecuting attorney, Nicholas Cowdery, said... Quote, the right outcome has been achieved. Justice has been done. Oh, my God. No, sir. It hasn't. He got nothing. Yeah. He pled guilty it? to, like, one little charge and got nothing. How was justice done like, for her? No. And don't say that because I guarantee you the family does not feel like justice has been mm-hmm. done. So don't speak for Diane because it was not done. So... Coroner Jacqueline Millage testified at Mark's trial, quote, Diane was a person who lived a decent and innocent lifestyle. She had embarked on her holiday with her 12-year-old daughter and her other family members. Hardly indicative of a woman who intends to cruise, party, and engage in a, in a sexual free-for-all. Why then would a woman who could not be described as worldly, promiscuous, or daring be found naked and dead in a cabin dying from the effects of the date rape drug yeah and this the defense attorney who is chris murphy he was all pissed off about jacqueline millich's statement and he said that her testimony was headline grabbing and inflammatory but diane's family like loved what she said mark brimble says quote somebody has finally got it right the way in which her life finished has finally been told Ultimately, P&O, the cruise ship, does reach a settlement for a large amount of money to Diane's family, and they have heightened security measures on Australia cruises. They, you know, have sniffer dogs now and CCTV cameras on board. There was also, like, laws put into place through the Australian government because of this case, The coroner, Jacqueline Millage, had actually recommended a bunch of like reforms on things. And so they went through her recommendations and they did put some of them into place. So the family sued the cruise line? Yeah, they did. And like through the research, there there is a lot of things that had happened on these cruise ships a lot of sexual assaults and different things even that same year the year before and like nothing was ever really being done about them so and what i found interesting was like pno cruises a lot they're all kind of connected so pno cruises is a subsidiary is well it's a sister company to princess cruises which we were just on and it's a subsidiary of carnival so like they're all connected But the cruise ship at first didn't do a great job of coming out and apologizing for what happened. In fact, it was like highly criticized because they ran a sexualized marketing campaign after her death. So the same year of her death, they come out with this like campaign for marketing. And there's someone who describes it as them pimping out their female passengers because it's like this thing saying, see men wanted. And it's like shows a deck full of women in bikinis. And then the tagline says, more girls, more sun, more fun. There's nothing else a guy needs to know. Which everyone just thought was in pretty poor taste following like the death of Diane, who was like literally taken by a bunch of men on this cruise ship and raped. Yeah. Wow. 
it just goes to show how the mentality on cruise ships sometimes can be dangerous. They're a lot of people are highly intoxicated and you're on a ship, so there's really nowhere to go. If there's a dangerous person on board, you could be in a dangerous situation. So I highly encourage you if you go on a cruise, which I honestly like a cruise, but please like be aware of your surroundings and create little things with your group to keep each other safe. One crazy thing I found is that one of the eight men, one that was not charged in Diane's death, Peter Pantic, he was, you know, a person of interest, but never charged or anything. He actually flees to Australia on December 6th of 2007, but this is not in relation to Diane's death, even though this is before the inquest and um, Mark's trial and everything concludes. He had fled and bought a one-way ticket to Serbia, and apparently he fled because the police have an arrest warrant for him on um, importing the prohibited zoophilia pornography. And zoophilia is said to be paraphernalia in which a person experiences a sexual fixation on non-human animals, whereas bestiality instead refers to cross-species sexual activity between humans and non-human animals. So Peter actually flees, but he does return to Australia in 2009, and he's simply fined $5,000 for the offense, and that is it. It's just kind of another thing that goes into showing how depraved these men are. And you know, the men are just out there living their lives. They moved on. They went home from that cruise. No one really got in trouble. Nothing really came of it. They're reported to, you know, some of them still get together for dinners. It's been said before that they've gone to dinner to celebrate the anniversary of Diane's death. Although the men that did go to that dinner say that wasn't the case and that's not why they were all gathered. But like a lot of them are still friends. They still hang out. They still live. They have families. It's just Diane was not honored in any way. Like no one no one was held responsible for her death. And it is disgusting to me that the judge in this case and the court system would betray Diane's family so severely in taking a plea agreement for such a small charge and then not even sentencing him to a day of jail or probation. It's just sickening. Aaron Brimble, Diane's son, said, quote, My mom played such a major part in my life. It was so hard to the change because my mom pretty much ran my life. Once it's gone, you just realize how much you actually miss those things, how much I actually miss my mom. Sebastian Brimble, her other son, said, quote, It's definitely changed me. I've had to be more responsible in my ways, the things I do. I'm actually working for the same company that mom was working at in the same building. Actually, walking up to the front doors the first day was quite tough. I've pretty much had to look after my brother since then and make sure he's, you know, got a roof over his head and he's eating well and things like that. And we'll end with a quote from Diane's mom, Betty Wood. Di, I am going to say goodbye to you. And you know I love you. I love you so much. Aluda Aluka.
Thanks for listening. I am Kayla Waters. I research, write, host, and edit this podcast. My co-host is Alicia Jenkins, and our palate cleanser is given to us by Charlie Waters. Our music was created by Jaden Schultz, who you can find on Instagram at In Pajamas Music. Hi, I'm Charlie Waters, and today we are going to be talking about time. Have you ever wondered how many seconds are in a whole year? Well, I'll tell you, because I know. In 365 days, 31,557,600 seconds. That's a lot of seconds. No one can even count that long. Time really flies. Bye. Have a great day. For our organization today, I'm going to send you to internationalcruisevictims.org. Their goal is to contribute to a growing cruise industry where passengers and crews are safe from victimization by working with Congress and other agencies and organizations to improve slash increase standards, regulations, laws, and justice. IVC also offers victims a community of belonging and a voice with which they might share their stories while providing assistance to other victims as they each, in turn, seek to recover from the injustices they have experienced. On their website, you can get involved, you can donate, you can look at victim stories, you can just learn all about their organization and see what you can do to support them. Again, that's www.internationalcruisevictims.org.